Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll hear remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at the Nuestras Raices stage, which was curated by the Pima County Public Library. University of Arizona Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Dr. Tani Sanchez, spoke in a presentation entitled Erased But Not Forgotten, Black and Latinx Heroes of the Old Pueblo. Librarian Jessica Pride was the moderator. Dr. Sanchez described growing up in Tucson and learning about her history through her grandmother and then going on to pursue her ancestry through oral history, genealogy, and DNA. She compiled her family history in the book Didn't Come From Nothing, An African-American Story of Life. This is part one of a two-part series. Here is Jessica Pride, followed by Dr. Tani Sanchez on 30 Minutes. We want to thank the Friends of the Pima County Public Library for sponsoring this venue and for supporting Nuestras Raices. Uh, Nuestras Raices is a library program that builds community by celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. And today, Nuestras Raices is also co-sponsoring this panel with Kindred, Pima County Public Library's committee to support, promote, and celebrate the black community in Tucson. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Tani Sanchez. She is the author of Didn't Come From Nothing, An African-American Story of Life, um, and is an associate professor of Africana Studies at the University of Arizona. She has an interest in racial representation in the media and in the study of African-American history and culture. She has worked as a newspaper editor, radio news host, and as a media information specialist. Dr. Sanchez is also the first president of the now-defunct Tucson chapter of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. Her doctorate is in comparative culture and literary studies, and her master's degree focused on visual culture and art history. She has lectured in Tucson and other cities on black history, racial representations in film, and on African-American family history and genealogy. Her wide-ranging background in broadcast and written journalism, as well as in public affairs, has included overseas assignments in the US Army and a stint in the Arizona National Guard. Her academic writings have been published in two anthologies. She has created political videos and has written and edited books and newsletters for community-based associations. A second edition of Didn't Come From Nothing was recently published as well. In addition to classes in Africana Studies, Dr. Sanchez has also taught art history and art appreciation courses. Welcome, Dr. Sanchez. Thank you. So first, talk a bit about your book. Okay. The book that I wrote, Didn't Come From Nothing, is based on an incident, or the title is based on an incident that happened with my grandmother. My grandmother's name was Mary Louise Wright Yule. She married a Yule. And uh, this was back in the 1970s, late 1970s. And you guys know what this means, right? Black power. Yeah, wow. So anyway, I was going through my black power phase, which I never really left. And I went to my grandmother, went over her house, and I said, Grandma, guess what? I found out. And it was some discovery because back then everything was so new and so exciting. And learning about black history was not what you were getting in the school. So I was going on. Maybe it was about 
about Charles Drew and the blood system. Maybe it was about, what's his name, Harold Latimer, who uh, invented the light bulb, the, the filaments in the light bulb. I don't know what it was about, but I was going on and on. And my grandmother just looked at me and she was sort of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then she just said, well, we didn't come from nothing. We didn't come here empty-handed. And when I think about what she said, it really represents a kind of generation and a kind of African-American person that would take you aside and say, well, this is what the white people are teaching you at school, but let me tell you what was really going on. Or let me tell you what our family history is. So being black and being raised in that kind of atmosphere, I always had a critical kind of look on our culture. And I think that's part of the heritage and legacy of being part of a marginalized people. Or let me put it like this, a marginalized people who have ancestors that are awoke. You guys have heard the saying, stay awake or wake up. If you remember the Spike Lee movie from I think it was the 1990s, School days, yes. In that movie, at the end of the movie, Lawrence Fishburne says, wake up. He looks at the camera and shouts, wake up. Well, and now we're saying uh, stay awoke, or we're still saying wake up. But um, when I think of that generation and what they had to give us, what they had to give us was this oral tradition and this memory. And we don't always think about how the people who came over here on the slave ships, we don't always think about how they came from cultures that were centuries old. They came from cultures that had really sophisticated abstraction systems that are types of visual language. They came from cultures that had lots and lots of tradition in their own hierarchies. And so to come here and to realize that was going to be stripped away. Your children weren't going to learn the proper ways to even use the bathroom, you know, with your left hand or whatever. They weren't going to learn things that people regarded as so important. And in fact, they were now going to be part of a new subhuman category of people. But that's not how they started out. And they had this upfront, close critique of the culture that they lived in. And so that was what my grandmother was building upon when she, when she said, well, we didn't come from nothing. This is a woman born in 1897. There was nothing I realized that I could tell her that she, she, would, say, she would say that no matter what I said. If I, if I told her uh, black people invented splitting the atom, she'd be like, <laughs> so, and, and I, t- I, you know what? I still have a little bit of that in me, but, but anyway, anyway. So one of the things that my grandmother did was she would tell stories about her Civil War ancestors. And for her, this was not an abstraction. This was not something she read in a book. These were people that she knew, she loved, a whole community of people. Some of them had been enslaved. They talked to her. Uh, uh, My great-great-great-grandfather was a soldier in the Union Army. And so he was her idol. She would tell me stories about him and what they did and how they lived. And one of the things I realized was that this was amazing. I don't know how many people have that. And if you think about the way people have been, you know, they they sit down on the porch and they talk to their grandparents and then there's the aunts and the uncles and then other people from the neighborhood come in and everybody is sharing this communal wisdom and they're sharing this communal kind of experience. Well, I took that for granted as a child. But if you look around today, that's not always happening with 
people, younger people today. They don't have that whole background of interaction and of knowledge. So I had a stroke about three years ago. And you're supposed to have like three years to live after your stroke. That's what a friend of mine told me. It's like, it's been nice knowing you. Gosh, you had a stroke. So anyway, I had to decide. I I, I made a decision. What do I want to do if I really only have three years? And I'm certainly hoping I have a lot more. What's important to me? What do I think that I want to do? And I've been working on this family history for about 25, 30 years since I was really young, uh, collecting information. And I really realize I want to honor my grandmother. I want to honor and respect that love that she had for her ancestors. And I want to get this book done. So I put out a first edition and I just said, hey, look, I was thinking as I as I wrote this, I could die tomorrow. Let me just get this out. So I do have a second edition where I kind of clean things up, got an editor and the rest of that. But um, I did get it out because I wanted to speak about those people who had learned how to survive in a very hostile environment and in a very hostile nation. Toni Morrison, the author Toni Morrison, she said that in an interview, it was a documentary I used to show in one of my classes, she said that we don't have that kind of, you know, front porch talking to all the elders, talking everybody in the community mixing in. She said, we don't really have that anymore. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to turn to the written word. It may be kind of alien for many indigenous uh, cultures, but it's not alien. It's actually an abstraction. Words are just abstract like like well words are abstractions whether they're verbal or whether they're written down so she says we're going to have to turn to literature and initially writing this I wanted to share with family members all of those wonderful things my grandmother gave me but as I began writing it and pulling it together I realized it's not just my family if you didn't have a civil war ancestor like my grandmother who knew these civil war people I'm giving it to you well I'm not giving it to you I'm selling it to you if you buy the book (laughs) but uh, that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to share just a priceless treasure I regard it as an incredible legacy I want you to know how they thought I'm trying very hard to give you a worldview that we forget about I'm trying very hard to give you some of those subjugated wisdoms some of those powerful knowledges that enabled black people to survive in a situation that most of us would have considered impossible so just to tell you a little bit about the book I did pick out a few areas this is a multi-generational saga of a family so it starts in the Civil War and it goes all the way down and I stop it at my mother's era because people People are alive and I don't want to share. I mean, really, there's a lot of stuff I can share. <laughs> and, you know, there's skeletons in the closet. You're not going to get too much of that in my book. You're really not. You're going to get a little, but not too much. Uh, so it's a multi-generational saga. I mix oral histories, some of it based on things my grandmother told me, but my very own mother also began collecting oral histories and writing them down. And she just became so energized by this. And she just collected a lot of things. I use a lot of her stuff. My sister, my sister remembers even more than I do. And I I don't even remember that much because I got married, left, lived in Louisiana and then came back. But my sister stayed here in Tucson. She spoke to my grandmother over and over. And as I was writing the book, I would say, Derry, do you remember this? Or Derry, do you know this? Would you look this over? And she'd say, Grandma said this. 
or she'd say something like that. So that was really good. Um, I also use academic sources. I used a lot from McNeese State University Library. I think that's the correct name for it. They had a lot of thesis dissertations about Lake Charles, so I was able to get information from that and other sources. And I use records, public records. One of them is from the Civil War depositions. I mentioned that my great-great-grandfather was a Union soldier. He applied for a pension. He died before it came, and then his wife applied for the pension. And in the process of doing that, I got a treasure trove of documents, things like Marianne Moss, the woman who was enslaved, saying, I worked on this, I lived on this plantation. This was my owner. Her brothers and sisters came forward to give testimony. People within the community, white and black, were giving testimony. So I had all of these, my grandmother's stories, all of these documents. And so what I did was I said, okay, I've got to put it together. I've got to get it together. And that's what I've been doing. I've been writing and using all of those things to tell this story. I also use DNA. If anyone has done family history, then they know that you reach brick walls where you're just like, I, don't, I, I have no idea. I can't find this. I can't go beyond my grandfather. Who was this? Who was that? DNA has been so revolutionary because just like I feel very confident about my particular family history in terms of rights and, and mosses from Lake Charles, Louisiana, there are all of these people all over the nation who are doing their own family histories, who are going from their own branches, and they've got their stories, and, and they've been doing it for years just like I've been doing it for years. And they're the missing pieces. In my grandfather's line, his mother, I could never get past his mother. It's like, where'd she come from? Can't find her. Well, turns out her line is part of two other extensive lines. They knew who she was. They knew exactly where she was, where she fit. They just didn't know where I fit. And so with DNA companies, and there are several that I use, I was able to contact those people. We were able to look at our predicted relationship. And someone was able to say, yes, her father father was this, her mother was that, and so on and so forth. So DNA's been really incredible. I guess I'm going to end this, you know, my kind of introduction to this. I do want to say in terms of oral history and writing the family history, particularly for marginalized people, this is a site of resistance. If everything around you tells you that you're nothing, that your ancestors had no culture, that you're barely human, and oh, aren't you lucky to associate with white people who can bring you out of your ignorance? Isn't that amazing? You know, if, if this is a culture, which I believe that it is, I believe we live in a culture that is inundated with white supremacy. And there are certainly breaks here and there. And there are certainly people who see beyond it. But we're inundated with it. If you live in this culture, culture, where is your point of resistance? Where is your point of knowing that, like my book says, didn't come from nothing? How do you know that? And I'd like to suggest that it comes because somebody who knows you can't just try to build you up on your own skills, but can tell you, you have a past, you have a history. There are people in your family, some were bad, some were good, some were mediocre, but you have a past. And, and let me just say one other word about DNA. There are different ways to do DNA, but one of the things I did was I went to one company that specifically looks at ethnic groups, 
and I found in tracing several different ancestral lines that the Charles Wright in my uh, Civil War history, my grandmother's grandfather that she loved and adored so much, he was 100% Asante. That really meant something to me it's for several different reasons. And then when I looked at my own particular maternal line, and we're talking mother to mother to mother, that's the only way you can do these tests, or father to father to father. When I looked at my mother's line, which is in my DNA and my mother's DNA, I found Akan, Akan of Ghana. And Asante is part of the Akan group. But it meant something to know that. And then when I looked at my haplo group, and this is where everyone starts going crazy. The haplogroup of my Uncle Taft, whose DNA came from, you know, male to male to male, Charles Wright, Charles Wright Jr., and then William Taft Wright, my great uncle, his DNA came back to ancient Egypt. And not just ancient Egypt, uh, one of the pharaohs, Ramses III. He's a good pharaoh. He wasn't the one they, you know, <laughs> followed the Israelites. So, you know, I didn't really think that African DNA would make that much difference to me because I'm firmly embedded in an African-American culture. These are the people who, whose stories I know who are buried in this land. But you know what? It did make a difference. It made a difference just to be able to name a group of people that you likely came from, at least according to current DNA, and I know there are a lot of people that are going to say, oh, well, they didn't do this right, they didn't do that right, you can't go by the DNA. You know what, this is what's out there now, this is what I'm going with. And if it changes, oh, I can move with it, I can live with it. So that's it. You are listening to remarks made by University of Arizona Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Dr. Tani Sanchez, in a presentation entitled, Erased But Not Forgotten, Black and Latinx Heroes of the Old Pueblo, with moderator librarian Jessica Pride on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Great, thank you. I have some questions for you. So the first one, because your book is so set in using tools to find family history beyond just spoken word, what are the pitfalls of doing genealogy with black ancestry or other people of color, Latinx, indigenous groups? I would say the first big difference is lack of records. Because people were enslaved, you can't just go back to a census and think that you're going to find people before the Civil War. Um, so that's one thing. Um, to have found the treasure trove of documents that I found, court records and, and um, Civil War depositions and all that, that is, not everybody has that. Not everybody has that. Um, in addition, um, you really have to do the oral histories. And some of those, most of those people are dead now and people who knew them are dead. But if you can find that person in your family who can remember the stories. And the thing I like about the South is, is, any, is anyone here from the South? Only, what, it looks like a handful of people? Oh my gosh. Okay, well, uh, I'm not from the South either. I was raised here in Arizona and uh, born in Nevada. <laughs> Southern Arizona. <laughs> Okay, so um, 
the thing that I like, because I did marry a man from the South and I lived there for six years, but I noticed those people remember everything. Do you remember back in whatever, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that? They can describe them down to a T. They can tell you names and you're looking at them thinking, I can barely remember what happened yesterday. And they remember everything. So if you can tap into people who um, have those stories who are in your family, that is a big deal. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, Latin American um, genealogy, that is something I'm working on. I'm a half Puerto Rican, but I was not raised in that tradition. My parents divorced. So I met my Puerto Rican relatives when I was in my 30s. And they started doing wonderful things, telling me stories about the first African who came over to the Americas and, and what his occupation was and his stories and where they lived. And so I'm writing all this down because I'm super excited because I like genealogy. I don't care whose it is, but I'm writing all this down. And I started, uh, I had a computer program. I started putting in the names and I ended up with like 660 names because they remembered everything. Oh yeah, you remember so-and-so went here? And, and then the interesting thing is you go to one family member and they'll say, oh yes, this is true. And then you go to no, another family and say, that person's lying. Let me tell you the real truth. <laughs> so anyway, I guess the thing to do is to start off, as most of you know, if you do family history, you talk to people, you get what information they have, and then you try to verify it in the records. On a more local note, how have we started to revisit the history of people of color in Tucson and its surrounding homestead areas? In your book, you talk about the families that moved from northern Arizona down here after things closed and climates changed and that kind of thing. I don't know that we've done so much. I know there are a lot of local authors who have made it a point to write about black history, but I don't know that I see their books in the libraries. I don't know that that part of black history is being taught in school. I hope that changes, but I, I don't really see it. And uh, there was even a mural. Uh, I was part of a Tucson chapter of the African American Historical and Genealogical Society, and there was a mural that went up downtown about the first people to come into town. Well, one of our members, Gloria Smith, she looked at the mural and she was like, where's Estevan? Where's this other people? Because she's done extensive research on blacks who came into Tucson. And so uh, Gloria was a librarian, by the way. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I don't know. And then so anyway, our organization kind of protested and said, put a black person in there. There was a black person in there. So then we looked and we found one of the members had a slight tan later, one of the portrayals. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I don't think that people really understand how black people were part of this community and, and some of the things that happened and how active they were in the community. My grandmother was a member of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, part of the Tucson Progressive and Civic Club. And these women, they went to the mayor. They agitated for Estevan Park. They said our children have no place to go. They advocated for a daycare. They did things in the 1930s and 40s and 20s that you would be amazed at. And it's a story that should be told, which is in another one of the books that I'll probably be selling. So, so anyway, but... Um, <laughs> Sorry, that sounds so awful, doesn't it? But um, these are research projects that I had, and I wish that this were taught 
along with other histories. It's not that African Americans were this gigantic portion of the population, but they sure were here, and they sure were doing things, and they sure were part of the community. Um, on that same line, your family migrated west in the 20th century from Louisiana, um, and you talk about the established black community doing things, the, the women's clubs, the progressive clubs. You also mentioned that it was nominally integrated, and um, we were talking earlier, and you mentioned you grew up post-segregation, but that means it was sort of still segregated. Um, but what did what did that community look like? You were here. Well, what it looked like was the way it was in a lot of uh, communities that are predominantly white. Black people were actively involved in the church, many of them. They had their own clubs, their, their girls' clubs, versions of the Girl Scouts or versions, uh, I think it was called Girls Reserve. Uh, they had all of this rich activity, but it was all black. It was with other black people. And from things that my mother has told me and my aunt has told me about growing up in Tucson, um, they, they moved here in the 1930s, um, everyone knew everyone. You kind of, And if you didn't know them, you sure knew someone who knew them. So you, you definitely could find out about people. And there was this big emphasis on doing everything that you could for the children. My mother taught at the Dunbar School, and there was a real interest in making sure that the very best you could give students, you gave them. They had Negro History Week, which is now Black History Month, and they had pictures of black people who were famous, like Frederick Douglass on the wall. They had all kinds of people, so that at least you had a sense of belonging. And my mother also taught at holiday school after integration. And at holiday, she used to tell me that if something happened where there was some issue with a child, this was not a disciplinary problem necessarily. This was the teacher goes to the home, to the family of that person because they cared and because they saw this person as a potentially um, useful member of society. This wasn't a delinquent. This wasn't a natural criminal. These were people they cared about. And so they would talk to the parents. The kids were uh, afraid of the teachers. Not exactly afraid, but they knew that those teachers knew their mothers and had no problems going down and talking to them. So... I'm sorry, repeat your question again. <laughs> it's just more about the black community in Tucson in the time when the Yules moved here and um, sort of towards your era. Okay, one of the reasons that they moved here was because of the education system. In McNary, there was a hill and everybody lived on the hill. Whites on the top, Mexicans in the middle, and blacks at the bottom. They had a white school and they had a black school. The black school was held inside of the church. My grandmother had a real reverence for education and she just said, no, this is not gonna work. I can't have my children growing up without the potential. If a door opens, I want them ready. And so when her oldest daughter reached the eighth grade, which was as high as the black school went, the white school went all the way to 12th, but with blacks, they just didn't fund it. So she said, we've got to leave. And so they came to Tucson, and I'll just speak about the education system a little. She came here because there was a high school that black children could go to, and it was Tucson High integrated. But integrated meant something different from what we tend to think of today. There were separate homerooms, 
So all the black kids were in one homeroom. They didn't intermix with others. There were certain activities that black people were not allowed, black students were not allowed to participate in, though they did let them play sports, but there were other groups and activities you couldn't do. So again, what black people did is they created their own organizations and their own events, and they had their own plays, and they had their own activities, a lot of it through the church, through the black churches. So even if you weren't necessarily religious, um, you would definitely be involved in activities there. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to remarks made at the 2018 Tucson Festival of Books at the Nuestras Raices stage, curated by the Pima County Public Library. University of Arizona Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Dr. Tani Sanchez, spoke in a presentation entitled Erased But Not Forgotten, Black and Latinx Heroes of the Old Pueblo with moderator, librarian Jessica Pride. This has been part one of a two-part series. You can find this and all other recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Schager.